Greetings in Jesus' name one more time today. It is always a surprise to me how fast a week can go. Uh, I found this week very enjoyable, so we go different places sometimes, and I think we'll take something special away from this week here. And I know it helped that we had connections here. Uh, Danny's from Guatemala, and by the way, Herling told me to tell you hello. And uh, Gerald's and Ivan's and some other people we knew before, so it's a blessing to be here and uh, relate this week. I enjoyed getting into your homes this week and being able to see Idaho through your experiences a little bit. And we will take back a lot of good memories from here. Thank you for your hospitality and your attentiveness this week as you've been here in these meetings. Uh, tomorrow, we plan to finish a bit of a Western loop. Not tomorrow, but we're going to start the loop tomorrow. We'll go out to the coast and go up the Oregon coast and make our way back across northern Idaho at some point and hopefully be home for Sunday in about two weeks. So you can pray for that as you think about it with our aging van and that get us all back safely again. Um, but even in all these other things we'll do, this week was a highlight that our family won't forget. And I really appreciate your efforts to make it work. Now I know that this afternoon is a hard time to be sitting in church. So if you feel a little sleepy, you're welcome to come up. There's plenty of room up here in the front. I've never seen a preacher go to sleep in the pulpit, and I doubt you will either if you're standing up here beside me. But I know it could be a challenge. And Danny, maybe after we're finished, I'll just let you close the service this afternoon. You'll be thinking about that. Um, I'd like to introduce this last message this evening just by reading a portion of Scripture in Luke chapter 21. I'm sorry, Luke 12. Quiero empezar el mensaje hoy por dar lectura a Lucas 12. Quiero hablar de un, una enseñanza que dio Jesús, que un peregrino en la tierra debe tomar. I'd like to uh, just read this passage without a lot of comment. But this passage begins with a material squabble between two people, two men. One brother said, Lord, make my brother be fair with me. He's not sharing the inheritance. I'm not getting my share. Jesus gives an example of what material things can do. The bursting barns, the retirement plan that does not, does not extend our life beyond the point that God plans it. And uh, continues this teaching then on the role of material things and our relationship to it. And I'd especially like you to notice as we read in verse 23 and verse 30, there's, there's the teaching here rests on two things. The first is simply that life is more than food and clothing. If material things are our focus, we're stopping short of our potential. So Jesus wants us to know that. And it's those that have no Father in heaven and don't realize what they have that seek and stress over this world's goods. And we who have a Father can know and trust that He provides in His way and His time. Probably the most, most important part of this passage is verse 34 where it says the place of our treasure is a magnet for our heart. That's basically what it's saying. Let's just read this and let Jesus' words speak to us. I think what he says stands for itself. We can understand it and we'll go from there. Luke 12 verse 15. And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. 
and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither has storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that fail not. And where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So that's just some introductory things that Jesus said, and what he says is much more important than what I say. So after being here a week, I realized the challenge that some of you have faced in moving out here. Uh, the economy is different. The life, life is expensive. Land is expensive. Thank you. And uh, what's available for work. So all these things you face and you've tried to figure out. Some here people moved here on faith and trying to make this work. And I've, I've blessed, this, blessed to see your hard work in solving this challenge. Uh, it will be a challenge. I think it will work. And as I visit a few communities, it's interesting to see the different things that people come up with to make a living. Up in Manitoba, it's all about beekeeping and selling equipment and uh, different things like that. Down in Meggs, Georgia, they raise chickens and sell flooring and raise or sell generators. Um, and making is catfish and concrete casting and some things like that. Metalwork and lawn furniture over in Indiana, it's RVs, lots of RV factories. That's what those people do, some of them. Uh, in Withville, it's hydroponic lettuce and mini barns. And out here, it's knife making and construction and um, ranching and bulk food stores. And you're figuring out a way to do it. And overall, um, seems like our good old German industry has served us quite well in allowing for us to live a fairly decent, comfortable life. We've learned to work. We've learned to apply ourselves. And uh, that's been the result of it. Now, on one hand, that's a kingdom asset. Uh, we're not living hand-to-mouth in such a way that we don't have time for travel. We don't have time for kingdom work. We can set a week aside if we need to. We have great potential to help the needy, to do things for others that we would not be able to do if we were living in a more scarce or, or uh, scant circumstances. It's funding for mission work. So those are good things. But I will say that this blessing is also a blessing that's fraught with danger. 
And the more we have, it's hard to have it and not love it. It's hard to uh, seek it, yet not compromise for it. And the more we deal with the things of this world, the closer we get to this world's systems and ways of thinking and ways of doing things, we have to guard ourselves against that. The more we own, the more we have to protect. Remember a story, short story by Leo Tolstoy. And in that story was a very poor man. On the way home from the village one night after dark, he sees something up there. He's scared of it. And he wants to run away and go a different direction. And he says this to himself, Have I become so rich that I'm scared of a thief? That's an interesting way to think about it. The more we handle this world's goods, the greater the temptation to see it as a solution to all my problems. I spoke to one man who was a, used to be a hardware store owner, and he said his problem was he began to think that money could solve anything because he dealt with it, he understood it, and he knew how it could work. Wealth is a relative term. Most of us would say, well, we're just sort of getting by. We're not really wealthy people at all. We're just trying to make it. And... Uh, that's possibly true. But wealth is always relative. And it's interesting to think that probably most of you guys could earn more in 15 minutes than a Guatemalan farmer could earn all day long. And yet we say we're not wealthy. We're just barely making it. But that's the truth. And uh, Jesus gave these warnings to people who were not rich. He gave these warnings to probably the poor of Israel. And if he gave these warnings then, 2022 in America is not a time to become complacent and relaxed in our dealings with things that Jesus warned about. Jesus gave a couple of commands here. One was negative and one was positive. In other words, there's a thou shalt not along with a thou shalt. And this is found in Matthew 6, 19. It says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So two very simple things. Don't do this, do that. The don't lay up is the negative side of this commandment. And there's reasons for that. I think Jesus is saying it won't last. At best it will serve for a while, but it's not a long-lasting value. Uh, it will pull your heart toward itself. That's one reason Jesus warns against it. Our treasure is a magnet to our heart. And our heart is the place where we worship. And so if our heart's worship is diverted, that's not a safe thing. I know that the specifics of what Jesus might mean here could become very controversial. And some have tried as a church to set down the limits to which we would go as a congregation in our personal dealings with these things. Some would say, don't grow your dairy past a certain number of cows. Don't own more than this amount in your bank account. Uh, don't grow your business past a certain level. Different churches have tried to take those positions. Some feel like you shouldn't have a savings account. And I guess if we really want to get technical and say, don't lay up, we should probably say you shouldn't have a coin jar, you shouldn't can peaches, and you shouldn't save up anything for the winter because that's saving up. That's... But let's not let those extreme possibilities detract us from the fact that Jesus did mean something when he said what he said, whatever that should mean. But that's the negative side. But there's a positive side of this commandment that is simply do lay up. It's just a matter of where we do it. Do lay up. There's a place where we can safely store all the treasure we want. There's no rust, no 
mildew, no moths, and our, it can attract our heart towards it as much as it wants to, and it's fine. If we have treasure in heaven, that's a perfectly good place to keep it. There's no danger of a misled heart, no need to leave it. And I would like to think that the negative side in this first commandment simply enables us to fulfill the second part of this commandment. So Jesus focuses on the positive. Don't do this so you're able then to do that. If these things can be seen together as a single one. And so to me, this passage and also Matthew 6, 19 lays a choice before us tonight, today. A pilgrim's choice, a choice a pilgrim would have to make as a pilgrim and stranger in this earth. What are we going to do? Because every believer, I believe, should end his life with treasure in heaven and the more the better. I think all of us want that. When we get there, that's what we would like to find. So I'd like to, today to discuss the two halves of this commandment. First half and the second half. What are some dangers of what's here along with how is it that we take what's here and engage it there? And what can we do? I don't know how this exchange rate works. How you can take material things and use them in a way they're transferred to a different currency, a currency that can be stored forever. That's sort of what we look at at the end. And sometimes the truth lies not in one extreme, but in a tension between two principles. And I think that's what we find in this principle. God is not a stingy God. And Jesus pairs this command to not lay up with the fact that God is not a stingy God. He is a generous and giving Father. And we know Him that way. But He sets forth a few principles that we can use to govern our use of material things. Estamos hablando aquí del peligro de tesoro terrenal. Hablando del dinero y no debemos amontonar aquí y debemos invertirlo allá. Y hay un balance ahí. Queremos hablar de esos dos lados. Leí en Mateo 6, 19. Ahí está una cita céntrico a este tema. So, this world that you live in and I live in was created specifically for us to enjoy and use. I think that's clear from the beginning. And we shouldn't hesitate to use it. God gave Adam dominion over it. And in doing so, he also gave him the blessing of using it. And so Adam soon learned the things that we know, that every good thing we enjoy probably comes from the ground. That's where coffee grows from. That's where wheat grows from. That's where morel mushrooms go from, grow from. That's what elk feed off of, and I've enjoyed a couple of those things this weekend. All these things come from there. God gave it to them. Everything we enjoy comes from what the earth provides, the metals, the lumbers, the resources. Probably the foundation of any nation's economy is what the earth can produce along with what the sun can help it produce, and that's where everything begins. And there's no shame in wealth gotten honestly. I think there's a principle in Scripture. There's no guilt in the blessing that God gives. If you've worked hard and honestly, God blessed it. Uh, you were fair. You served well. And this is the result. That's, that's good. God expects us to apply ourselves, provide for ourselves and others. In Titus 3.14 it says, "...and let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful." So, to go to work tomorrow morning doesn't feel very spiritual, but you are obeying a scriptural command if you do. Uh, good works for necessary uses. Don't be unfruitful. To produce necessary things is a spiritual value that blesses the ones around you, and God wants us to do that. And Jesus knew when He said, man should not live by bread alone, that we had to have at least some of it. 
And this world is good. It's productive. It's rich. And much good can be done with it. And much of the reason that the world struggles in poverty is because the man's sinful and selfish nature has brought upon it some of the evils that it suffers. So Paul gives this advice to the wealthy in 1 Timothy 6.17. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So we see both sides there. Some people, and I know some of them, have a knack of pretty well everything they touch turns into a, turns into a money source. It's just their gift. It's, it's what they can just see through things. They, they set up things at work. And they work well and serve well, and this seems to be the result of it. And that's, that's how it works. So some people don't have that gift. I certainly don't. But I enjoy watching the, uh, the ability of those that do. But here's the warning. And here's the blessing in this. The two things that he points out here, God is not stingy in giving us all things to enjoy. We enjoy, I do, an early spring morning, uh, turkeys gobbling, uh, cold apple cider, hot coffee, uh, roses, all these things that just make life beautiful, enjoyable. We have steady work, hopefully, which is light in what God gave us. But beyond that, God expects us to, to delight responsibly. That's also true. God's warning balances blessing. There's two things that Paul commands us if we have to do with this world's goods. Number one, stay humble about it. And uh, never feel ourselves better or greater than because we have it, or worse than and inferior to because we don't. That's not a measurement of, of personal uh, score. And that's a great temptation to score ourselves by the wealth that we amass. Uh, that's the way the world often does it. To use it as a means of comparison one to another is not God's plan. It's not wise. We should never do that in the church. We should be careful about that. And don't trust it. Paul says here to not trust these things. Because they're uncertain. We don't know how long they last. We might think we have a great pile of mass and inflation happens. We realize we, we don't have near as much as we thought. That, that happens easily. But wealth is deceitful. It edges out trust. It, it teaches us that it has its own solutions. Um, and so it's a fine line that we walk. We somehow have to, to enjoy what this world gives without loving it. We have to use it yet not cling to it. We have to earn it, but let it flow. We can't be uh, stingy and tightwadish. I think that's not God's plan for us. We have to be aware that every day when dealing with these things, we're handling the things that have the potential to draw our hearts away from God, and that's a dangerous thing. Wealth can become an idolatry, and that happens to many people. Uh, so 1 John 2.15, Primera Juan dos quince, Love not the world... Where does that happen? Love not the world. That's, that's a heart thing. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this last word in the same epistle says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. How do you do that? Well, it's the love of the heart and the tangible things around us that work together. And the place of our worship becomes the affection of our heart. And that's where the struggle becomes very real. And sometimes we're not sure how to define it. So I was 
in a congregation one time. There was a young man who was very excited. I think he was about 18 years old. He just bought a brand new side-by-side four-wheeler with four-inch cleats. And he was excited about what he had just bought. He had had his eye on one model that was within his price range. Then he realized that was a little more expensive than he thought, but he could get a better interest rate if he got the more expensive one. So he paid $5,000 more for the, the better one. And uh, it was impressive. It would handle swamps and ditches and snow and ice and mud. He gave me a ride in it, and I rode around his little place there. He told me what he paid for it, and he justified it. He said, this thing's going to keep its value. I can use it as a tax write-off. I didn't tell him that that 4F4 was worth twice as much as what all three of my vehicles were put together. Uh, that's sort of how it worked out. And I guess even an $18,000 side-by-side is a neutral object. It's just a thing. It's a, it's a means of conveyance. It's a horseless carriage. But it's hard to own something like that and not love it. It's possible to have a million-dollar home on a golf course or a new bass boat and not love it, but it's pretty hard. It's probably possible to buy an old farmhouse on seven and a half acres and spend a year fixing it up and finally move into it and not love it, but it's hard. And I say that from experience because by the time you invest all that emotional energy and all the planning and all the work and then you step back and look what happened, Something happens. You have to be very aware of what's happening inside. And so we face this struggle. And Christ's great concern in all these things is that our heart would not be drawn away from Him through them. And He knows us. He knows our weakness. He knows our fascination with material things. And so He gave us these two commands. Don't lay it up here. Lay it up there. Don't love it. Don't idolize it. Wealth is deceitful. The New Testament, if we look at it honestly, never speaks highly of wealth. Paul said, gain is not godliness. We can't equate material blessing with God's approval. Some people try to go down the line. If, if we have abundance, that must mean God loves us and has, blessed, has, has somehow favored us. You know, it's, it is a favor and a blessing, but we can't equate those things. Jesus said, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. The other night we read about the thorns choking the weeds, and that was the very thing we're talking about. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the cares of other things pressing in was the thing that drowned out the seed. The reason is that the amassing of these things can change the way we think. It can alter the way we decide things, and we begin to view life in a, a different way. And it's a hard thing. I read this quote, and I was trying to find it. I don't remember where it was. I think it was John Wesley or somebody that said it. The consequence of godly and frugal living tends toward wealth. It does. If you work hard, if you don't spend on unnecessary things, your tendency is to amass it. But the amassing of wealth tends to create spiritual lethargy. So what are we left to do? Um, we'll, t- we'll have to think about that. What, do you, what, are we, what is left to do? But Sodom, let's think about Sodom a little bit. If you go back to Genesis 19, you read about Sodom. It was a morally depraved place. You think about the story of Lot living there, the angels coming there, and what happened that night. They broke all the boundaries God had set, and the angels were there to destroy. I'm sorry, if it was God or His messengers there to destroy this, this place. But 
When we think about Sodom, we think of immorality. But when God spoke of Sodom in Ezekiel 16.49, He speaks of something a little bit different than that. In 16.49 of Ezekiel, it says, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So when Jesus spoke up, or God spoke through Ezekiel, He did not say the sin of your sister Sodom was homosexuality. He said their sin was pride, abundance of idleness, abundance of material things, uh, fullness of bread. That's her, that was what she had. No mention of the perversion, but a focus on the environment in which those things grew. Now that condition is not foreign to us at all. If we would look at the country we live in, the very things that that God accused Sodom of is the very thing America dreams about. Higher wages, more free time, American pride. Let's just let the rest of the world marinate in their problems. We'll just take care of ourselves. We are exceptional. We are wealthy. We, are, we have it all together. And Sodom became Sodom in that environment. That's what they were before they fell. Now in themselves, time and money are both not neutral resources. You can do anything you want with them. You can do good. You can do evil. And we're blessed with that. Abundance of time and abundance of resources. We need to be very aware of what we have. Uh, if you add pride to that, if, if you add um, a sense of personal inflation and superiority to that, if you forget the poor and needy, you're right where Sodom was. We can use it. We can abuse it. We can own it. We can be owned by it. We can serve our flesh with it or we can serve our king with it. But those are decisions we have to make. But here we are. We have these things. We deal with them every day. We have a family to feed and bills to pay. Got to make some improvements. Hopefully we can maintain good habits even in the midst of these tighter years. And I've pictured this progression, and maybe you can tell me after if this seems to ring true or not, but, but uh, picture this progression of pursuit, this progression of of circumstances. The same could be true for a new settler moving west on a covered wagon or a new family trying to set up a house here in council. But the first thing they, they know they need is whatever it takes to make life possible. For the early settler, it was a bare cabin. It was meager food. It was simply the basic means of survival. And that's where we start. That's where we all start. And then after you get your food and clothes and shelter and some maybe basic transportation, maybe your Maybe your education needs set up. Then you have a little more room to think about what are some things that could make life beautiful? And we all enjoy flower beds and paint on our walls and extra things that make life a little more uh, beautiful. We do that, expressions of our creativity. And then we think about what makes life easy. So we have microwave ovens and soft chairs and better mattresses and uh, more plush vehicles to drive in and labor-saving devices and internet, all these things make life a lot easier. And we start thinking about what, what kinds of things make life safe. And there's reserves and there's insurance and there's contingency plans and all the things to protect what I have and have amassed. And then people start thinking, what can I do to make life amusing? And there's entertainment, there's sports, there's movies, there's shows, there's music and places to go and things to see and things to do. 
you know, when you're barely starting and you have almost nothing, you're not thinking about entertainment very much. You're thinking about the basics. But we tend to, as, as life progresses, we tend to slide out into new tastes and new dimensions that we might not have done at first. Now, where in this process should we say, okay, I have enough, I'm going to stop working, stop being productive? I don't think we should. From poverty to, to wealth, we should be productive people. I think the Bible teaches us that. Now, where in that process should we start becoming kingdom-minded? Somewhere after basic needs are met? Somewhere after life becomes easier? I think we should be kingdom-minded from the very beginning. And so all the way through, we should think about giving. We should think about serving. We should think about the things that God wants from my life, whether I'm blessed with much or little. And that should always be part of who we are. I don't think there's a clear line in Scripture that once you've gotten this much, it's too much. But I think it is true that further down this road we go, the more dangerous it probably becomes. Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. John said you can't love both the world and love the Lord God with all your heart at the same time. Jesus said you can't lay up treasure in two places at once. So there's a choice you need to make. It's a pilgrim's choice. What would a stranger and pilgrim do? I'm not going to make a lot of applications, but I do want us to think about several things. So I heard about a story one time. This was told in Guatemala years ago. Minister's meeting, I think. This rabbi walking down the road, some strange place, in the dark, and he bumped up against, or he, he took a fork in the path, maybe the wrong fork, bumped up against this rock wall and stood there trying to get his bearings. And he heard a voice up top saying, Who are you and what are you doing here? And the rabbi thought a little bit and asked this man up there, How much do they pay you to ask that question to everybody that comes by? And he said, They pay me a denarius a day. He thought a little more and said, Well, I'll pay you two a day to come to my house and ask me those questions every day. Who are you and what are you doing here? And that's a good question I think about and good question to answer whether we have much or little. And Jesus knew the answers to those questions. I believe He did. You see that in Luke 2, 48, when His parents found Him at the temple. He said, I am my Father's child, that's number one, and I must be about my Father's business. That was what He was here to do. That's who I am and that's what I'm doing. And I hope that's the answers to these questions that we could also give, not only from our lips, but in our life. And I believe that if we have our hearts set on those answers, all the time God gives us and all the wealth God blesses us with will be well used. We can take that, we can use it, we can invest it. It will be an opportunity and a blessing. And I will say again that when Jesus said we don't amass here but we amass there, He's limiting us in one space to enable us for the other. So those things go together. I'd like to suggest this afternoon three areas of the Father's business that we could say would be ours to adopt, ours to think about, um, beyond the things of what I should not do, what should I be doing, what should my life count for, what should be the result of my life. I guess there's a spiritual exchange rate here. These are things we can do to do this transfer from earthly things to heavenly benefit. And uh, here's the first one. I'll just jot them on the board so you can visualize them. Number one.
So we said the other night that the greatest goal of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Did you know that one of the reasons that God saved you was so that from your life and my life would simply flow praise and glory back to Him? We did not worship God, and now we do worship God. In fact, in Ephesians 1.5, it says, He predestined us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ Himself to the praise of the glory of His grace. So He saved us, He gave us the Holy Spirit so that this would happen, the praise of the glory of His grace. And I believe that you and I today are in the best possible place to make this happen. The angels of God, we said that this morning, the angels fell from a perfect position of glory and worship and did not give God what He deserved. We who came from this fallen world in this dark place can give God what He desires, what He wants, what He needs, what He uh, desires us to express. We choose to submit and obey. So that's the first one. So Hebrews 13, 15, By Him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually that is the fruit of our lips giving praise to His name. You know, as Satan complained about Job, no wonder Job fears you because you've blessed him so much. And it's easy to praise the Lord when things are good, when things are happening in my favor. And that's always acceptable. But it's in the times like on the ash heap or in the stocks or in the belly of the whale or wherever we're experiencing at the moment, when we praise God from that perspective, that, gives, that sends a special message to God and the devil both about our commitment to the Lord. All of God's, Satan's complaints about the believer's unfair advantage at that point is stopped. But there's another way I wanted to look at especially. Our work of stirring up praise to God can go further than that. And uh, one example of that is in Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So think about it this way. Here's God. Here's you. And here's somebody else. He sees you, and He glorifies God. Because you did something that impacted and blessed Him. And there's a triangulation happening here that allows us to bless others, to stir up in them praise to God, and God wants that to happen. It's a... Uh, we see that again in... Um, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9. These, these are all complicated verses that will probably put you to sleep if you read them. So I'll just explain it. Paul was taking up an offering to take back to the believers in another place. And so the, the believers in Jerusalem had this dire need. And so the believers over here in Corinth decided they're going to take up an offering to bless those people. And so Paul said, I'll read this much, Your offering not only supplied the needs of the saints, but is abundant by many thanksgiving to God. They receive the offering, they glorify God for your gift, and they pray for you. See what's happening? So, you sent them an offering. The first good thing that happened was their need was met. Whatever dire circumstances they were facing was met. And then they did two things. They praised the Lord for you, and they prayed to God for you, so this is complete. So what you did with your wealth, giving that offering, what you did to bless somebody else, stirred up in them a thankfulness and a gratefulness and a praise back to God. And you did something, not only to praise God yourself, but to cause other people to do the same thing. And that's one thing we can be involved in. 
Um, have you ever experienced that? I've experienced that. When you're facing needs so big you can't get through them, and somebody else steps up and helps you and does something for you, uh, you say, Lord, thank you for this brother. They have helped me out. I'm so blessed and encouraged. And there's a bond there that happens between you and them. There's a praise that happens toward the Lord, and you pray for them as well. This happened when we were doing our house. We tried to do a lot of the work ourselves, and the ripping apart. There are some things we could just couldn't put back together. I'm not a plumber. I'm not an electrician. So when a man in church said, you know, I'll show you how to do it. You can run the wires. I'll come back and, and button up your, uh, your breaker panel. And I'll oversee the process, and you can help me, and I'll help you. And after working for almost a year in a dirty, dingy place with lights pulled here and there in the dark to try to see what we're doing, can you imagine what it felt like to go flip a switch and the lights came on? It's like, look at the light. Praise God for Josh Wolfer. He was here for hours helping me get this done. Same thing with the plumbing. I'm not a plumber. Some people came in and helped do that. We could turn the faucet on and water comes out. And praise the Lord because they helped out. And I'm blessed by examples here. I think some of you experienced the same thing. Look at things that other people did that I'm benefiting from and just say, well, praise back to the Lord. That's what we do. Thank the Lord for the brethren. I think that's part of the Father's business. When you can generate praise, not only from your life, but in the life of other people toward the Lord. The people you touch, the lives you influence, the service you render to them. If believers thank the Lord for you, if unbelievers wonder at what you did, your example, your blessing, uh, if, if the aroma of Christ is there when you go by, that's the Father's business. Sometimes it takes most of what we've got to make life work. Do you have time? Do you have resources? What can you do to promote Him? If you want treasure in heaven, don't have to just amass a spectacular pile. You can turn resources into a praise generator, as it were, and then God can get that glory. That's how we touch eternal values with earthly resources. There's another one I'd like to point out that I believe is part of the Father's business. I'll just put this up here. It is the Father's business that the lost understand the gospel. I'm blessed to see so many representatives here from so many places. There's people from Chile, people from Guatemala, and other places they've served, and this is the goal. It's a blessing to be involved in that work. I believe the spreading of the knowledge of God is close to God's heart, and there's this gap that exists between this congregation and the people who live in town. Uh, this area and the needy people all over the world. The churched and the unchurched, the saved and the lost. So we're in here. They're not in here. Somebody's got to cross that gap. Somebody has to take this knowledge to where they are. They probably won't come in here to find it. That is God's will that, that people know. And I think for every person that hears the gospel, it's because somebody took the initiative to take it across that gap that exists. His will is that none should perish. It's His rejoicing when a sinner comes home. That's the Father's business. We can be involved in that in a couple of ways. We can go ourselves. And some of you have. May the Lord bless you for that. Across the continent, across the world, or across the street. 
there's needs around us. There's this example I love to share from home where there's a little road where some of our church members lived, and along that road there lived a hermit. His name was Peter Stump. He lived in a little rickety house. He was a farmer. He did not like to have other people around. If he'd be walking down the road and you would drive by, he would sort of turn and look off in the fields and not even make eye contact. Uh, he didn't like people. He just stayed away from people. One time he had some plumbing problems, and one of the brethren on the road there was enough of a friend that he called him and said, hey, could you help me figure this plumbing problem out? So he went in there and got the problem fixed, and before they, he left, he just turned to Peter Stump and said, uh, would you mind if I prayed for you before I go? And Peter said, sure, you can pray for me. And they did. And then months or a year or so later, Peter got cancer. And we didn't know about it. The, even the neighbors didn't know about it until it was fairly advanced. And we finally found out that uh, he was in a hospice care about an hour away, and they didn't think he was going to make it. And so the same man that had helped with the plumbing problem went down to visit him and spent some time with him there in his little room. And Peter looked at him and said, I've got a, I've got a strange question. Do you think you could get me a Bible? And Stephen said, sure, I'll get you a Bible. And so he drove over to Walmart, picked one up, came back with it. And Peter said, I've got another strange question. Do you think I could go to church with you come Sunday? And Stephen said, sure, I'll show up and I'll take you to church. You'll be my personal guest and I'll make sure you get there and feel good about it. And Stephen didn't even call him back before Sunday morning because he was afraid he would change his mind. So he just showed up. Come Sunday morning, he drove an hour, got there. Peter's ready to go. Got his wheelchair in the van, oxygen tank, and they drove back to church. And they wheeled him in, put him in there in the back of the church, back row. And he just sat there and listened to the singing to the teaching, to the preaching. Afterwards, people came back and talked to him, visited with him. He just drank it up. He didn't want to leave yet. He was one of the last ones to go. And Sunday after Sunday, he came back. And he started asking questions. And we just tried to answer questions. We took him things to listen to, things to read. He would ask questions about salvation, ask questions about the Bible. He came to church until he couldn't anymore. And one day somebody went to visit him and Peter looked at that person and said, Jesus is my Savior. I don't know when the change came. I don't know how it all happened. But that was his testimony, his response to what he had learned. And he, he probably only lived for two or three months after we got to know him. He died soon after that. Now, Stephen's a good businessman. But even good businessmen can have a kingdom heart. And that's what he had. And he crossed a gap that few people got to cross. And he was able to bring somebody back with him. And I don't know, Peter didn't have a lot of time to grow in his Christian life, but I fully expect to see him up there. Looking forward to that. So we can all do that when opportunity arises. But beyond that, we can be part of a chain. Paul writes about this chain of people that it takes to get from here to there. Uh, how shall they call in him and whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him and whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? So there's this line that exists from where we are to where they are. And it has to be populated with resources and people. There's those who send, there's those who support, there are those who go. And all that's necessary to take the gospel across. We can be part of a sending church. We can take personal interest, help with financial support. That's all important to do. There's so many things that support kingdom values and kingdom efforts 
that we can get behind. You notice the fighter pilots you get all the attention. I don't know how many ground crew it takes to keep one fighter pilot in the air, but it's more than a dozen. It might be more than 20 to keep them flying. They don't get any notice, but that's what's required to keep them out there. So we have missionaries here. That's excellent. How many people does it take to keep them there? Uh, we work together at that. But that's the Father's, father's business. If you want kingdom, if you want treasure in heaven, we can be involved in the work like that and take the resources of earth and put them to use and dispo- at the disposal of God's kingdom. And here's one more. Number three. The church of Jesus Christ is the core project of the new covenant. He wants to get the church home to him. It's the joy of his heart, I believe. And I believe the Father's business is anything that contributes to the growth of the church. I like what Ephesians says in 4.15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. There are many gifts, and there's one purpose. All these gifts, like teaching, encouraging, evangelizing, warning, church cleaning, cooking, deacon work, all these things work together for one thing. And that's that the church would prosper and the church would grow. You know what the key to that verse is? It says the church grows according to the effectual working of every part. In other words, if you have a congregation of 100 people and one-third of them are plugged in and two-thirds of them are bench warmers, that's basically meaning that we have a church that's growing at one-third capacity because we have one-third engagement. If you have a church where the ministry team is the team that does everything, Everybody else is along for the ride. It's not a church that will prosper the way it could because this is the, it grows according to the, what everything supplies. I look at it this way. When God wants to give grace to the church and allow it to grow, He doesn't bring a five-gallon bucket and dump it out on a Sunday morning. But when you have your devotions and you seek the Lord for yourself, He gives you a measure of it and gives your brother a measure of it and the rest a measure of it. And we come together and do church together. Each of us contributes it to the whole. And that's how church happens. That's how church grows. Paul spoke highly of Stephanus' family. They have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That's the best addiction I've ever read about. People who are just committed to serve the brotherhood. And pour yourself into it to pray for it, to love it, to build it up, to support it. If you never leave your home community, if you never go across the ocean, but you simply support and pour into your home congregation, that is not a waste of your life at all. If, you're, if your life and presence can help your local church prosper and grow, that is the Father's business. And there's nothing wrong with that part of it. That's a beautiful part of what God wants us to do. So those two things, there are several things we can be involved in at least, that help us take the resources that we have available and transfer them to things that make an eternal difference.
Scripture gives us two sides of the same commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love not the world. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Don't lay them up on earth. Two commandments with the same thing. Two, two sides of the same thing. I think there's a couple of attitudes that affect a life like this. People that live like this will have a sense of contentment about them. Not envious. Not, uh, not eaten by a sense of their lack or shortcomings. Happy with what God provides and the opportunities at hand. And generous. People that live like this are people of generosity that are willing to share and to take what God has given me and pass it on and bless others and bless the work. It's a habit of generous giving that makes the kingdom move forward. It, it requires that. And God's promise is very real. That if we seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added to us. If we keep our eyes open, kingdom work is everywhere. You can find it at your place of work. You can find it around your kitchen table. You can find it here at church. But there's, there's work to be done. There's people to bless and encourage. And I would pray that the sum of our life would be this. When it's all over, that's what we have done. These things have happened in our wake. I'll just finish by saying this. Jesus has given us amazing resources, especially here in our time in life. It's basically this concept. If we take these things, lay them up on earth, do with them what we want to, we can enjoy them and live with them as long as we're here. But when we're not here, it all stops. If we lay them up in heaven, whose are they? I think they're ours as well. We get to keep them. And we, we can enjoy them forever. We can take what we want and live for it now, enjoy it here, and it'll stop, or we can put it up there and enjoy it forever. May God give us abundant resources for the work and abundant heart to pour into it. And may we leave behind us not the monuments of mammon, but monuments of men and of churches and monuments for heaven, monuments of praise. Those things stand as a glory to the Lord forever. God bless you here in this place to continue to do these things. I'll give time to you. Please.